money trickles down and the federal government's giving less to the states, the states are giving less to the local governments, and everybody's hurting for money. It's a way of regressive taxation. It's making up for the lost revenue and tax cuts for the rich. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, The Bradcast, and Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf. Chicago has been um, in a little bit of trouble after they changed the amount of time or the length of time that their yellow lights remain yellow during uh, traffic stops. So there is a rule, it's a three second rule, a yellow light should remain yellow for at least three seconds. But apparently, someone went in and kind of rejiggered the system, and as a result, it went down to about 2.9 seconds. Mm -hmm. Now some of you might wonder, why is this a big deal, and why are you telling us about this irrelevant story? Well, it's actually very relevant, because the policy change generated 77 more tickets, and nearly Eight million dollars in revenue for the city over the last six months. You know what was happening? People were running red lights, the camera would catch them, and they'd get a citation. Okay, I love how you dramatically said that, but you left out the thousands. 77 tickets. It's 77. I said 77. Damn it! Everything's gonna be all right. No, it's not. (laughs) Okay. It's 77. Thousand tickets. You know what it is? I know. Okay, seven seven thousand. I was more excited about the eight million dollars in revenue in six months for one city. Okay, so this story has so many amazing twists and turns. Okay, first of all, it turns out the guys who instituted the cameras in the first place, been around for at least a decade in Chicago, mm-hmm. were incredibly corrupt, and they bribed the government officials to get the contracts, to continue the contracts, to give more and more tickets out. See, this is how we all get screwed, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a, and it's a form of taxation on the people. Uh, that can least afford it because it goes to the average guy. It could be a rich guy, it could be a poor guy, but it's spread out across everybody instead of a progressive tax system that takes more from people in higher brackets at higher income levels, right? So uh, they did that, they screwed people over. But now they actually have left and it's a new company. Rahm Emanuel, who's the mayor now, did not do the original contract and he blamed the old guys. Oh yeah, it must have been them, those corrupt guys. Yep. No, but it turns out it was actually Rahm Emanuel. When he was redoing the contract, he told the new guys, nah, he didn't want a bribe or anything like that, but he'd already given tax cuts to the rich because that's he's a corporatist yep. Democrat, yep. right? He's got to make up the money. How he's going to make them up the money? He thinks he's clever. He's like, oh, I'll just shave 0.1 second off of that. It'll create more revenue, and it did, $8 million. He thought people weren't going to notice because it's just 0.1 seconds. People noticed. And they got mad because it's such a disproportionate amount of tickets compared to what it was in the past. Yeah, all of a sudden there's this huge spike, and so authorities in the area were like, we need to investigate this and figure out what happened. According to the Chicago Tribune, the Emanuel administration on Friday acknowledged that it had changed the rules on what qualifies for a $100 ticket, quietly directing its new red light camera vendor to tag drivers even when the duration of a yellow light slips just below the three second standard set by the city. Okay, so he acknowledged it. At some point, he's like, all right, fine, you caught me, right? And then here's the part of the story that makes me livid. He acknowledged what he did was wrong, right? He didn't say what I did was wrong, but he implied it. And then they said, fine, we're going to suspend this program. However, we're going to keep that revenue we generated. Oh, of course. Of course! No, no. It makes me so mad. Okay, so two things that are maddening about the story, about how power works. One is, as we just mentioned, 
That $8 million came out of your pocket, right, if you live in Chicago. Now, it could have come from corporations, it could have come from the rich who could more afford it, right? And remember, marginal tax rates, the way that they work is, if let's say it's 35% or 39% or something, not all of your income gets taxed at that number. Only after you cross over a barrier does every dollar above that barrier get taxed at that. Like let's say the number is $350,000, mm -hmm. at 35% you're only paying for every dollar above $350,000 at 35%. So it makes sense, that's why a progressive tax system makes sense. But they don't want to do that because the rich are their donors. Whether they're Republicans or Democrats like Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel is corporatist Democrat 101. That's why Obama he, loved him, right? Yeah, that's, and he, he was Obama's chief of staff. Mm -hmm. and he. He was the one who called liberals retarded yes. because you'd be stupid not to take corrupt money when it comes your way, right? So this is, he's smart enough not to do the old kind of bribery, the illegal bribery, like the other company did, right? And the other city officials did. He does the legalized corruption where you pay $8 million and his buddies save $8 million in essence, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, and he thinks he's so clever. Now, the second part that's maddening is that when people were pointing out this problem originally, before the government admitted to it, they're like, what are you talking about? They're like, no, we looked into it and these are conspiracy theories and it's not true. And they gave 13 different justifications. And each time, you know, people have to say, well, I mean, the government's official position is that nothing changed. So anybody who thinks it changed is making it up. But wait a minute, look at the numbers here, right? Yeah. In one case, in a 52 day period, one light gave out more tickets than it had in a year and a half. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now you're telling me that's perfectly normal. That's not normal. But the government often asks you to suspend uh, disbelief because don't believe your lying eyes. Believe the government. The official position is worth more than facts and truth, right? Yeah. In another case, a two-day uh, spike tagged 64 drivers at a camera that only normally tags a few motorists a day. So look, I'm, I'm a logical guy, I see normally that camera gets two guys a day, yeah. now all of a sudden it's hitting 64 people a day or every two days. Yeah. There's obviously something up, and they cover up, cover up, cover up, and at the end, you know one of the things that the government said before they admitted it? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, it's because the other cameras must not be working, they didn't used to work as well in the past, yep. you guys got away with it, you, we should have actually been charging you more all along. Get out of here. Ugh. I know. And look, this is not an isolated incident. This is the type of stuff that you will see throughout the entire country. It was definitely true of Los Angeles when they increased parking fines here in the city. It's a way of regressive taxation. It's making up for the lost revenue and tax cuts for the rich. And it sucks because it affects the middle class and the working class the most, the individuals that need that money to make ends meet for their family. It's also why I'm opposed to all these cameras. Because it's only a matter of time before they start playing with the rules and mm -hmm. rigging the system, etc. So there's a three seconds that turned into 2.9 seconds that turned into 77,000 tickets. There's also now they're saying camera sensors on speed, and it used to be that it would tr get triggered in some of these at 15 miles per hour because it's a place where you shouldn't be going very fast. Then they lowered it to five miles per hour. They didn't tell people that, and they started giving tickets to everybody. It's crazy, right? So you got a police state that's watching your every point one second mm -hmm. and then shifting all of the burden of the taxation onto you mm -hmm. and then calling you crazy when you challenge them on. That's the way it works. Welcome to America. All right, luckily we caught him here. Tr Chicago Tribune did a great job with this. See, that's why you need a watchdog mm -hmm. of the government.
to actually make sure that you keep power in check. Great job. And now at least the people of Chicago have got the problem fixed, even though they're still out $8 million. Everybody knows, everybody knows that it's Here's another issue Richard's got driving through Illinois. Hey, Richard, you're on the air. So my, my comment is that, you know, ever since the 80s when, um, you know, Reagan showed up and the whole push for smaller government, you know, money trickles down. And the federal government's giving less to the states. The states are giving less to the local governments. And everybody's hurting for money. Most of the local police departments have turned to traffic stops as a revenue-generating source. You know, it's like one of their biggest ways to bring in cash. Yeah. And they concentrate most of these stops, areas of, like, lower working class people of color, because they know these people don't have the resources or the time to sit there and even fight something as uh, simple as a traffic ticket. Most traffic tickets, when you get them, I know where I live, if you get a ticket... You can't even get a court date to fight it until you put you post bail, which is usually the cost of the fine, the court costs, the whole thing. It can be, you know, $500 up front just to get a court date to fight a ticket for running a red light. Well, a lot of people don't have the money or the time to go through that. So it's quick, easy money for the cities. They don't do it in white areas where people are making good money. Because you no know people are going to post that bail, and they're going to show up in court. Most of these cops don't even show up in court if you get a court date. And I know this from experience because my wife got ticketed like that. Yeah. So, it, 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 thank you, Richard. It's a, it's a you know it's, it's it's an excellent point. There's it's not just like institutional and structural racism. It's institutional and structural Republican or conservative stupidity. This like you know let's strangle government. That mm-hmm. then throws it down to the cities, and then the cities are looking around, going, "Okay, we got to do something. Let's let's start squeezing some money out of folks. You cops, do it." And then now you're now you're talking to an institution that really came out of slavery, the police departments in the United States. And what are they going to do? They're going to pick on people that are that are not going to pick back. Not that we necessarily needed any more evidence that the supply side right wing economics of trickle down and don't tax the rich and huge income inequality and wealth inequality don't work. We have a really great case study from Minnesota, where in January of 2011, Governor Mark Dayton inherited a six point two billion dollar budget deficit and a seven percent unemployment rate from his predecessor, supply sider voodoo economics. Tim Pawlenty, the very quickly forgotten 
Republican candidate for president. He called himself Minnesota's first true fiscally conservative governor in modern history. He prided himself on never raising state taxes other than increasing the tax on cigarettes by 75 cents a pack. And between 2003 and 2010, which is when Paul Enti was uh, governor, he managed to add, this is, you're going to think this is a typo, but it's not, 6,200 jobs. Okay, 6,200 jobs as the first truly fiscally conservative governor. During his first four years in office, Governor Dayton has raised the state income tax from 7.85 to 9.85 on individuals earning over $150,000 a year, couples earning over $250,000 a year. That brought in over $2 billion more dollars. You would think that that's a job killer, right? That's going to destroy the economy. He also increased Minnesota's minimum wage to 950 an hour, or rather put in place a plan to increase it to 950 an hour by 2018. He also passed a state law that guaranteed equal pay for women. Sounds like job killers. Sounds like government intervention, getting too involved in business and blah, blah, blah. And that's exactly what some Republicans like state rep Mark Uglum warned saying, quote, the job creators, the big corporations, the small corporations, they will leave. It's all dollars and cents to them, but they were proven wrong. Between 2011 and 2015, Governor Dayton added 172,000 new jobs in Minnesota's economy. That's 165,800 more in Dayton's first term than Paul Lenti in both of his terms. And even though Minnesota's top income tax rate is the fourth highest in the country, it has the fifth lowest unemployment rate in the country at 3.6%. Lewis, what do you make of this? I think uh, I like these numbers. I mean, we don't really have uh, any evidence in our country's history that uh, what Paul Enti was doing works. We don't have any evidence of that anywhere in the world, really. But we have plenty of evidence that taxing the rich and increasing, uh, you know, paying people a livable wage uh, has a positive impact on the economy. What about the destruction of business that Republicans fearmonger around Forbes, which is no progressive rag, has ranked Minnesota the ninth best state for business? Scott Walker, who claims to be the super pro-business guy in Wisconsin, Wisconsin is ranked 32nd in the country in terms of the best states to do business. And in spite of the fear mongering that all of the high income earners would just leave Minnesota, actually 6,230 more Minnesotans filed in that top income tax bracket in the year after Dayton's tax increases went through. What's the budget look like? Well, as of last month, Minnesota has a billion dollar budget surplus and Governor Dayton has pledged to reinvest at least a third of that money into public schools. Wow actually taking the surplus from the demand side stimulus and reinvesting it in education, which I don't know, I think might have an even more positive effect on the state's economy, because we know that there's a positive economic impact from increasing the average education and quality of education for people. Isn't it official at this point that trickle-down economics have been completely debunked? I think so. Unfortunately, a lot of voters don't know that. Just like voters in Alabama and Mississippi aren't aware that it's their politicians for the last couple hundred years that have been destroying their states. Uh, who knows if voters uh, up there in Minnesota even realize uh, what, about the positive things that are happening there because of these policies. I wish that Republican Governor Sam Brown back in Kansas could learn a thing or two from Mark Dayton. 
Uh, we've talked uh, two or three times now about how Sam Brownback went into Kansas, cutting education, cutting taxes for the rich, uh, uh, cutting social services. The, the state is doing so, so poorly, lagging the recovery in terms of jobs, whereas Minnesota doing really, really well. It's just sad because we could say it's all politics or just it's just political games. But this actually affects people. These are jobs for people who need money to support their families. This is this is people's lives that we're talking about. And Republicans insist on pushing these policies of, of supply side economics that we have no evidence at all have ever worked. And it's affecting actual people's lives. Well, I know just what you think of me drowning in your economy. I know just what you think of me. I feel it trickle down. I know just what you think of me drowning in your economy. I know just what you think of me. I feel it trickle down. Talk to Milton Friedman and it turns you on to high. Convinced you made our kings had a deep-seated defect. It's hard to keep the money if the money gets spread around. Gotta hold on to that dollar, gotta hold on to that pound. We got this story in The Times. And it, it's quite hilarious. I mean, the... the, the, Nagorni, the, the Times doesn't really square the circle here. It's really just, it's presented as like some Republican governors are seeing the light and realize that they have to compromise and raise taxes. Republican governors across the nation are proposing tax increases and backing off pledges to cut taxes as they strike a decidedly unrepublican pose. In the face of budget shortfalls and pent up demands from constituents after years of budget cuts. So, in other words, as opposed to them simply just abandoning this whole notion that if they cut taxes, it's going to raise revenues, which is not explicitly stated in that first paragraph. We're supposed to know that's the Republican ideology. They're looking decidedly unrepublican because what are they doing? Well, if you dig into the piece, you begin to realize what they're doing. Despite the fact that Governor Rick Snyder says it's not based on partisanship, it's based on common sense and good government. He's raising taxes. Oh, really? Is he raising income taxes on the wealthiest people? Nah. Oh, is he raising uh, those uh, corporate taxes that he cut? Early in his time? No. No, he's going to raise taxes on... Things like gas or not so much in Michigan, but like things like uh, sales taxes. Basically the most regressive of all taxes. Nikki Haley of South Carolina, a Republican. She said she'd allow the state to raise its gas tax. But only if the legislator cut its income tax by almost a third so essentially, she's saying, let's transfer the cost of government. And I, for reasons I've discussed in the past, I think the increasing the gas tax is a good idea, at least federally speaking. But she's using this to fund income taxes on the wealthiest amongst us. 
In Maine, Governor Paul Lepage. He's, be, he's, he's decidedly non-Republican by calling for increasing the sales tax and subjecting more goods and services to taxation, but only to offset the cost of lowering the income tax and eliminating the estate tax, which hits 0.01% of the population. That's decidedly unrepublican. Making taxes more regressive. The whole concept of a flat tax or a value-added tax, I should say, is incredibly regressive. But apparently that's not a Republican idea now. Of the states that cut their personal uh, income taxes the most in the 90s, Three grew more slowly than the average, th uh, and three others, all energy states benefiting from a rise in gas prices, grew more quickly, according to a recent study. So in other words, Kansas is the norm. You cut these taxes, and essentially you have sluggish growth, and you also have a state that has to begin to severely cut its services. This coming on the heels of a report by the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy that in 2015, the poorest fifth of Americans will pay on average 10.9% of their income in state and local taxes. The middle fifth will pay 9.4% and the top 1% will average 5.4%. In other words, States and localities that rely on sales and excise taxes, that being uh, other fees, have a regressive tax structure because those fees and those uh, excise taxes and those sales taxes hit low-income people the exact same proportion Look, everybody's got to go buy certain things. And so um, it's a double whammy to increase sales tax, excise taxes, and then cut income tax on the richest. In, the t in 10 states, the bottom 20% of earners pay up to seven times as much of their income in taxes as the top 1%. So uh, this story about how these people, these Republicans are being so decidedly un-Republican, nah, it's really just more of a fallback position. I mean, Mitt Romney in Massachusetts cut taxes and then just larded up on fees. Again, redistributing the cost of society onto poorer people. That's basically the plan. That's about as Republican as you can get, I think. 
but too big to fail to stop treading on us keep the bottom line high give a minimum wage a hypocritical politician will never regulate understand every campaign's funded by the banks every single human being has a certain common trait throw a stack of money down and watch the pupils dilate all the same motherfuckers talking about the free market glad to take a tax dollar stop the fat ass pockets we got socialism for the rich bootstraps for the poor first priority is that the fat cats profit uh, this comes from AP today. After he became Kansas governor in 2011, Sam Brownback slashed personal income taxes on the promise that the deep cuts would trigger a furious wave of hiring and expansion by businesses. But that, quote, shot of adrenaline hasn't worked as envisioned, and uh, the state of Kansas budget has been in crisis ever since. Now, many of the same Republicans who helped pass Brownback's plan are in open revolt, refusing to help the governor cut spending so he can avoid rolling back any of his signature tax measures. If Brownback won't consider any of the tax cuts, they say he will have to figure out for himself how to balance the budget in face of disappointing revenue. Boy, who could have seen that coming, huh? Tax collections missed projections in 11 months of the past year. Brownback took office on a pledge. Brownback, a hard right-wing Republican, a hard right-wing Reagan Republican who promised to bring Reaganism full bore to the state of Kansas. He took office on a pledge to make Kansas friendlier to businesses and successfully sought to cut the top personal income tax rate by 29% and exempt more than 330,000 farmers and business owners from income taxes altogether. And, of course, that would uh, spur jobs. That would, uh, in turn, would, would bring an increase in the, uh, the tax base uh, coming in, the revenue coming in. Turns out it didn't work. It never works. It didn't work when Ronald Reagan tried it. It doesn't work ever. The predicted job growth from business expansions has not happened, says AP, leaving the state persistently short of money. Since November, tax collections have fallen about $81 million or 1.9% below the current forecast's predictions. Last month, all of this caused Brownback to order $17 million in immediate reductions to universities. And earlier this month, that delayed 93, he delayed $93 million in contributions to pensions for school teachers and community college employees. The state has also siphoned off more than $750 million from highway projects to other parts of the budget over the past two years. So the uh, rich people got a tax break. Businesses didn't have to pay taxes at all. And who paid the price? For these schemes that simply do not work? Oh, it was uh, college students and school teachers and community college employees and people who use the roads and the highways and the bridges. By the way, all 40 Senate seats and 125 House seats in the state of Kansas are on the ballot this November. Just saying, people of Kansas. And the bulk, the vast bulk of those people on the ballot uh, voted for what Sam Brownback did. No matter if they are now trying to say, oh, we, we, we would like to change it. We had nothing to do with it. They were in favor of it from the jump. They celebrated it. I hope you'll remind them about that this November at the ballot box. 
Brownback has since rejected calls to scale back his tax cuts. He shows no sign of backing down. But even an economist for the Conservative Tax Foundation, Scott Drenkard, uh, told legislators last month that farmers and business owners appeared to pocket the extra money that they got from the recent tax cuts rather than use it for expansion. Quote, tax avoidance, not job creation. Oh, imagine that. What? They didn't uh, hire people because they had more money in their pocket? Nobody does. They don't hire more people unless the demand goes up. They don't just create jobs because, oh, they got a tax cut. So let's hire people for fun. They don't do that. It never works. Reaganomics is a joke. It is exactly, frankly, what George Bush Sr. said it was. Voodoo economics. It does not work. No matter how many times Republicans lie to their voters about it. The state's personal income tax collections dropped 24% during its 2014 budget year. That's down $713 million. Official projections for the 2017 fiscal year is less than two and a half billion, 15 percent off the uh, off the peak of 2013. Meanwhile, Kansas reported gaining only 800 private sector jobs between March of 2015 and March of 2016. That is a mere 0.1 percent increase. That's Reaganism. That's Republicanism. That is so-called conservatism. And it is costing the uh, the good folks of Kansas dearly. Just as I thought it was going alright, I found out I'm wrong when I thought it was right. It's always the same. It's just a shame. That's all. I could say day, you'd say night. Tell me it's black when I know that it's white. It's always the same. It's just a shame. That's all. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Sam Brownback uh, has been trying to fill his hole for a long time. It's a hole he created on his own. Uh, it's a deficit in uh, Kansas that is very significant because uh, he cut taxes on the rich. He said, oh, no, the economy is going to pick up if we do that. We're going to create a lot more jobs, and then uh, we're going to have no hole at all. It's going to be completely stuffed. Well, it turns out that's not what happened. He had a giant cavernous hole in his uh, budget, and uh, the jobs didn't come. In fact, uh, Missouri uh, nearby has higher taxes, and the jobs went there instead. He was wrong. He was wrong about it all. So now, what is he going to do? Well, he's got to do a couple of things. First of all, he cut education massively. Now, uh, the courts in Kansas said, well, you're not doing it right. Some of the things that you did was unconstitutional. You can't do that. So he then passed a bill threatening uh, the justices that he would take away their funding for the courts entirely if they didn't agree with him on some legislation. Isn't that amazing? I mean, dictatorial, ridiculous, 
uh, an obvious violation of the separation of powers. Now he's got a new plan. He's got a new idea. Well, okay, tax is not so bad as long as you tax the poor and the middle class. Of course. According to the Associated Press, the state sales tax will rise to 6.5% from 6.15%, and the cigarette tax will jump by 50 cents a pack to $1.29. That's the tax on it. Okay. Now, uh, what does the sales tax apply more to? Well, that's a bigger percentage of your income if you're poor or middle class. If you're wealthy, well, the sales tax doesn't affect you much. It's a much, much smaller percentage of the money that you have. Same with the cigarette tax. So Brownback knows this, and he says, while some critics would have you believe that the state is raising taxes, that is not accurate. But wait a minute. <laughs> That's not an argument. You are raising these taxes. So why is he saying that? Because in his mind, it's like, I'm not raising taxes on the rich. Those are the only people I care about. Oh, the poor and the middle class. <laughs> yeah, who cares? Of course I'm raising taxes on them. But that's not really raising taxes. Raising taxes is not if you raise taxes on my rich friends. More from the AP. But a new analysis Tuesday from Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, a nonpartisan but left-leaning policy group based in Washington, so the cumulative effects of the changes in tax policy since 2012 have benefited the state's wealthiest residents the most while increasing taxes for its poorest residents. So when Sam Brambach brags about cutting taxes, he doesn't mean cutting taxes for you. If you're an average citizen in Kansas, he's raising your taxes. He means cutting taxes for the really rich. How's that working out for you in Kansas? The analysis posted online said the poorest 20% of states' residents will pay 1.5% more in taxes than they did in 2012, or an average of $197 a year. Meanwhile, the wealthiest 1% will pay 1.9% less, or an average of about $24,600, the group said. Literally, reverse Robin Hood. He takes from the poor. From the poorest 20%, he takes on average about 200 bucks. He collects it all and gives it to the richest people in the state. The top 1% on average getting more than $24,000 in tax breaks. This is the perfect example of Republican ideology. Take from the poor and the middle class and give it to the rich. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the Glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. He called the greatest archers to a tavern on the green. They vowed to help the people of the king. They handled all the trouble on the English country scene and still found plenty of time to sing. If you don't think that the poor pay enough taxes, you are living in a fantasy world. One of the stranger sort of conservative right wing talking points uh, is the claim that the tax code is somehow not fair to rich people who are unduly burdened by the progressive income tax that we have in this country. So an example is Stephen Moore from the Conservative Heritage Foundation saying, quote, the top 10 percent pay two thirds of the income tax while the poorest 50 percent pay only three percent. If you hear that, you might say, wow, just amazing, right? The poor are ripping everybody off. The rich are getting screwed, right? Right. 
it used to be that conservatives would always use this to push a flat tax. And I'll tell you why this is all just a huge scam. First of all, a progressive income tax is supposed to work where those who earn more pay more. So it's intellectually bankrupt to focus only on on that element. But it is also intellectually bankrupt to focus only on federal income tax. When you hear these talking points, Lewis, from the right, they say, look at the distribution of who's paying income tax federally. We have to think about the total tax burden, payroll taxes, Social Security, Medicare. If you make under $118,500 a year, you pay Social Security and Medicare on all of your income. If you make more than that, you only pay that tax on the first 118.5 thousand that you make. The rate lowers as your ability to pay goes up. Hmm. Doesn't sound like that's unfair to the rich. If you're richer, more of your income comes from sources of, uh, of income other than wages, which are usually taxed at lower rates, lower income tax rates, uh, capital gains rates. You're exempt from Social Security and Medicare. You use your deductions to lower your effective income tax rate. And the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy actually did an analysis of if you look at the combined total tax rate paid by different income groups, taking into consideration income tax, Social Security tax, Medicare tax, state and local taxes based on total income. It is true that the poorest pay the least on average, the lowest. If you divide it into five quintiles, the lowest 20 percent pays 19.2 percent tax on average. OK, the second 20 percent pays 23.2 percent. All right. The middle 20 percent pays 27.2 percent. Makes sense, right? Slightly higher rates as you make more money. Now, here's where it really gets interesting. The fourth 20 percent, so those earning between the 60th and 80th percentile, pay 30.4 percent. What about the top 20 percent? Let's subdivide it. If you're between the 80th and 90th percentile of income, you pay 31.6 percent, basically the same as those between the 60th and 80th percentile. If you're in the next 5 percent, meaning you're in the 90th to 95th percentile, you still only pay 32.1%, basically the same. And if you're in the next 4% between the 95th and 99th percentile, you pay on average 32%, still the same rate. And if you're in the next 1%, the top 1%, you pay 32.6%. Once you get to the 60th percentile, you essentially pay the identical tax rate as those in the top 1% on a rate basis. What happened to that unfair system to the rich, Lewis? Actual data makes it evaporate. Right. And of course, successful lobbying over decades and decades has uh, has led to this. And it's been a successful campaign for the rich. And, you know, we're just talking about uh, the taxes at the federal level here you know, factor in what the poorest people are paying uh, at the state level in taxes as well. And uh, it's incredible. And there are two debates here. The big one is what our taxation system should be. But the underlying debate, which prevents a real debate about taxation, is what our tax system is. If people don't even realize that once you get to the 60th percentile, you basically don't pay on average a higher tax rate all the way up to the one percent. 
people don't even get that. So how can we expect to have a serious conversation about how to reform taxes if that's what we want to do if most people don't even understand what the tax system is? Back in 2012 at bradblog.com, uh, Ernest A. Canning, our legal analyst, wrote a three-part series on the, uh, on the so-called war on drugs, asking a number of disturbing questions. Among them, he looked at the profitability of the prison industrial complex, as he described it, in the U.S., and the extent to which the world's largest prison population provides a ready source of what he kind of accurately describes as slave labor for some of the world's largest corporations. He cites a, a, a film called uh, The American Drug War, The Last White Hope, and reporting by Vicky Pelez of Global Research, finding that the size of the U.S. prison population, which is disproportionately comprised of African Americans and Hispanics, is the product of two perverse economic incentives. One, a, pris a privatized prison industry, whose financial success is dependent upon greater numbers of prisoners serving lengthier sentences, and two, the availability of a slave labor pool to corporate America. He cites a number of uh, uh, corporations in at least 37 different states that uh, take advantage of this uh, so-called uh, prison labor. Companies such as IBM, Boeing, Motorola, Microsoft, AT&T, Target, and so forth. Between 1980 and 1994, profits from prison labor soared from $392 million to $1.3 billion. And uh, while some inmates receive minimum wage, in privately run prisons, it's reported, they receive as little as $0.17 cents per hour. Pelez's article over Global Research quotes Kevin Mannix, the former chairman of the Oregon GOP, underscoring how this form of labor has furnished an attractive alternative to outsourcing. Mannix uh, recently urged Nike to cut its production in, in Indonesia and bring it to his state, telling the shoe manufacturer that there won't be any transportation costs. We're offering you competitive prison labor here. That's a quote. That's something to bear in mind next time you hear a Republican crowing about jobs creation in this country. In short, legalization poses a direct, uh, this is talking about uh, drug legalization, uh, poses a direct threat to corporate America's bottom line, Canning reported at bradblog.com, and the war on drugs, and you deplete the available pool of prison slave labor, as well as the profitability of private prisons. But uh, there's another element to all of this. Late last week at Huffington Post, Washington Bureau Chief Ryan Grimm reported on another disturbing aspect or two of the privatized prison industrial complex. He writes, uh, Mississippi jails are losing inmates and local officials are devastated by the loss of revenue. He quotes one county supervisor, noting that uh, if they do not send our inmates back, we can't make it. That's right. Over the past several decades, many states and counties have come to count on revenue 
brought in by housing prisoners, particularly in many of these so-called conservative areas where officials continue to lower taxes for the wealthy or otherwise refuse to raise taxes to meet the needs of residents. Uh, the decreasing number of prisoners, particularly as sentences for minor nonviolent drug crimes are being lifted, are beginning to hurt the bottom lines of official state and county budgets around the country. Joining us now to talk about this is Huffington Post Washington Bureau Chief Ryan Grimm. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me on. So what your story in, in Mississippi is enlightening, and I think it's really uh, about much more than Mississippi, ultimately. But uh, what the hell is happening here? You're writing about Mississippi, and I suspect this is an issue we're likely to see elsewhere. How did this reliance on income from prison population get started in Mississippi in the first place. So in the in the late 90s the state was facing uh massive overcrowding issues, you know, as the era of mass incarceration was really, you know, hitting its peak and starting mm-hmm. to plateau there. And so they reached out to the state reached out to the counties and said, "We would love to help you build uh regional facilities mm-hmm. and we will uh then send you state prisoners so you'll get uh, you know, 35 to 45 full-time jobs here, uh, and you'll get the construction jobs that come along with building the prison, mm-hmm. and we'll promise to keep the prisons filled at an 80% capacity. Now, they also promised that they would give a 3% uh, per diem increase, you know, year year, out, year over year to mm-hmm. help co- cover the costs of the prisoners. After a couple years, they stopped doing that, and they said, well, look, we've got so many prisoners, we'll just keep pushing you up over the 80% number. So that's gravy for you. You know, you got empty beds, we're going to fill them. And, and every time we fill them, you get money. Uh, and so the, the, the county said, okay, that's fine. So, uh, the, so now, they actually changed, they, the, the, well, they, they had actually, they promised they would get uh, 3% more money each and every year. And then suddenly that changed. Was that uh, through a legislation? Did they just stop paying that? What, what they came just, about? They just stopped. They just stopped paying it, and some, now some of the counties are talking about suing to try to get it back. Mm. Okay, but they had guaranteed that there would be at least 80% occupation, so right. to make up for it, they just sent them more prisoners, and uh, right. so they made the same amount of money. And so in the last few weeks, now that the prison population is shrinking, mm-hmm. uh, they started taking prisoners back to take them down to the 80% level. It, it's a it's a reverse of what was happening 10 years ago, where everybody was fighting to offload prisoners because everybody was overcrowded. Now they're fighting uh, to, to keep their beds filled with, with these bodies uh, so that they can, so that they can then be the ones that get the credit for the, for the revenue that comes along with them. And, and, and are they simply allowed as far as you can tell to change the deal just because they're the state or is, is that the one of the point of contentions here that they they're may be still, suing over? I mean, they're still meeting their 80%. Okay. Um, and the commissioner called the the deal a wink and a nod deal, you know, the above eighty mm. percent part, and and said that, you know it's not I'm not obligated to, you know, uh, you know to stick by any mm-hmm. wink and a nod deal that I didn't have anything to do with. Um, so if they want to fight for the three percent, then uh, they're going to have to go to court over it. You write in your piece at Huffington Post, uh, Ryan Grimm, that uh, as the wave of mass incarceration, this is uh, the mass incarceration from the uh, from the 80s and 90s under Reagan and Clinton and so forth, as that begins to recede, 
The Mississippi controversy has local and state officials talking openly about how harmful locking up fewer people will be for the economy. Confirming the suspicions you write of those who have argued that mass incarceration is not merely a strategy directed at crime prevention. This reminds me, uh, Ryan, remember the old uh, Twilight Zone uh, with the aliens uh, and that book uh, at the end. And they say and the book is called To Serve Mankind. And they realize at the end, oh, it's a cookbook that kind of occurred to me here that people that these uh, folks down in these southern states are suddenly saying, wait a minute, this was never about crime crime. This is really about an alternate way of bringing in revenue to avoid having to raise taxes. Is 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 that what your your reporting is was telling you down there in Mississippi? Yeah, that's right. And and the local officials are also talking quite openly about the about how this kind of exposes the the state and the federal government's conservatism as as bankrupt and as as not true conservatism because they so these let's say you're a Tea Party member on the, uh, and you're a supervisor of a county mm-hmm. in Mississippi. You're not very impressed by the the state legislators and the and the governor who are who are slashing taxes, slashing spending, and calling themselves conservatives, and then uh, just forcing the counties to pick up the tab, which they do by raising property taxes and then by having prisoners pick up the the labor. Mm-hmm. In other words, you've got prisoners picking up garbage. You've got them doing the the groundskeeping for the schools, and uh, you know, and and cleaning cleaning the highways, and you know, all of these jobs that in the seventies and eighties uh, or into the eighties were middle class jobs, you know, are now uh, being done uh, because the government's kind of trying to eliminate itself by this by this convict labor, and and the supervisors they call them supervisors down there, supervisors that I talk, basically county commissioners that I talk to. Mm-hmm said yeah this is not conservatism don't 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 pretend that this is that this is conservatism My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentaries. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. There's an amazing piece that was published over at Vox.com last, uh, I think it was last week. It was on the 4th. I'm sorry, it was on the 8th of April, of August, of April, April 8th, 4-8. So that would have been like last Thursday, Friday, whatever. And it's titled, I'm an American living in Sweden. Here's why I came to embrace higher taxes. And, oh, hi, Blue. 
Uh, Louise and Blue just showed up here in the studio. Uh, anyhow, with Swedish income taxes, they're not my, so the, the, here are the, the six reasons why I have come to love Swedish taxes. This is an American. U.S. critics say that Swedes pay 56%, so the government takes over half of your money. And by the way, that's in the neighborhood of the top marginal tax rate that Bernie Sanders has suggested. Anyhow, U.S. critics say that Swedes pay 56%. And, and by the way, that's less than we used to be the top marginal rate in the United States before the Reagan administration. When Reagan came into office, the top marginal tax rate was 74%. When Lyndon Johnson came into office after Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, the top marginal tax rate was 91%. And it had been there since 1933. So anyhow, back to the article. U.S. critics say that Swedes pay 56%, so the government takes over half your money. This is not true. 56% is the top marginal tax rate, what high earners pay on income over a certain amount in both state and local taxes. Only 15% of Swedes pay tax at this rate. It turns out that the average Swede pays less than 27% of his or her income in direct taxes. As I've written elsewhere, my wife and I pay about 22% of our U.S. income in taxes. Our Swedish income tax was 31%. So yes, our income taxes in Sweden were higher than the U.S., but we still paid less than a third in taxes. And you get far more for your taxes than you do in the U.S. In Sweden, college is free and students get paid a housing stipend. A colleague's daughter, Kirsten, just completed a five-year dental program. Her family paid nothing for her education. The Swedish government gave her $340 a month to live on when she was in school and the right to borrow up to $700 more a month, and presumably a very, very favorable interest rates, if at all, which she did. And they point out that in the U.S., dental students graduate with an average of $215,000 in debt just from dental school alone. Number one. Number two, in Sweden, your tax forms come to you already filled out. The government does the work. You don't have to hire a tax professional in Sweden. And in fact, I would say here in the United States, one of the reasons why our government doesn't do this work, because it wouldn't, I mean, this, this would not be a huge expense for our government to, to mail you a 1040 already filled out. And you can just sign it if, you, if it's all accurate. If it's not accurate, you can fix it and sign it and send it back. Turns out the tax preparation services... We pay $32 billion a year for that. He says, my wife, Betty, and I each have a PhD, but that's not enough to understand IRS instructions. But in Sweden, the four-page tax form comes in the mail already filled out. On a Saturday morning, Betty and I take our coffee to the couch and review the forms, seeing they look reasonable, as they always do. We sign with a text from our phones. In 15 minutes, we're done. We don't have to hire a tax consultant. We avoid fights about whether a print car cartridge bought at the drugstore is a business expense or not. Number three, there is no property tax. There's no property tax in Sweden. There's a fixed fee that you pay every year. It's $825, whether you've got a million-dollar house or a thousand-dollar house. So he, they say this, the fee is $12 a month for their co-op apartment in Stockholm. If we owned the same property in Madison, our taxes would be $18,000 a year. It's, pretty, it's, it's a pretty amazing story. I, I, it's by Tom Heberlin, Heberlin, excuse me, H-E-B-E-R-L-E-I-N, April 8th at Vox.com. It's, it's really, really a, a worthy read. The meat tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. 
The last question about taxes that many of you have written to me about and that I wanted to answer in today's program is the notion carefully cultivated by conservatives, by business community, and by the rich that we here in the United States, or to be more accurate, they here in the United States suffer from a very heavy tax burden so that in this presidential race and in other places, there's this effort to reduce the heavy tax burden. Okay, now let's look at the reality as opposed to the PR hustle that comes from corporations and the rich. I will use as my source the most respected statistical source on these subjects. It's called the OECD, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. They issue an annual report. The one I've been looking at is the 2015 Economic Outlook, Annex Table Number 26, for those of you who might want to pursue this. And they list the countries that they cover, uh, a total, I believe, of 34 countries. These are called advanced or industrialized countries. They are more or less the better-off, richer economies around the world, 34. Okay, where does the United States rank? It ranks number 30, excuse me, out of 31. The total number of countries is 31. The United States ranks 30th. What does that mean? We have the next to lowest burden of taxes of any of those 31 countries. The only country that levies taxes in total, federal, state, local, and that ends up with a burden less, excuse me, more than that of the United States, is Korea. All the other countries put a heavier burden of taxation on their people than we do. In short, the United States taxes its people less than most other countries do. I'm going to give you the names of the five countries who tax their people the most. Ready? Here we go. Finland, number one. Denmark, number two. Norway, number three. France, number four. And Sweden, number five. These are places where the social services people enjoy. Five weeks paid vacation, a national health service, free higher education or very, very low cost and on and on and on, are way beyond anything that countries who don't tax as highly as they do. But no matter how you look at it, and no matter whether you agree with high taxation or low taxation, the fact is, if you care about the facts, that the United States has cut taxes so that it is number 30 out of the 31 richest developed country. It has just one above the lowest level of taxation it places on its people and its businesses. And for those of you that are care, these are total government receipts as a percentage 
of the GDP. What portion of the total output of goods and services, the total income generated in a society, finds its way into the hands of the government? So, for anyone to argue there's a big government taking all of our money is misleading you and carefully avoiding facing the relative low taxes that Americans pay compared to people anywhere else in the developed world. We just heard clips featuring the Young Turks exposing how Chicago attempted to make up for tax cuts to the rich by gaming the red light ticket cameras. Tom Hartman talked with a caller about police departments being called on to help make up budget gaps with traffic stops in minority communities. David Packman highlighted the case study in Minnesota between a tax-cutting Republican governor who was replaced by a Democrat who raised taxes. The majority report examined several Republican governors who pushed to raise fees and regressive taxes in order to maintain tax cuts for the wealthy. Brad on the Bradcast broke down why Sam Brownback's Reaganomics experiment in Kansas utterly failed. The Young Turks then looked at the measures being taken now in Kansas in the wake of their incredible budget deficit. David Packman busted the myth that the poor aren't paying enough taxes. The Bradcast then spoke with Ryan Grimm about the way Mississippi sees their state's prisoners as a source of economic activity that needs to be maintained. Tom Hartman told us about the article written by an American who loves paying higher taxes now that he lives in Sweden. And finally, Richard Wolff on Economic Update busted the myth that Americans and American businesses are already suffering under a heavy tax burden. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, this is Doug from uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. I was calling in about the who to vote for, voting for the lesser of two evils or the evil of two lessers. And in my state, my vote's not going to count towards anything one way or the other. And the only way I can make it count towards anything one way or the other is to vote third party, is to get more recognition for the Green Party and Jill Stein and my ideas forward. Me voting for Hillary in the election would be pointless. On top of it being pointless, it's something I would never do in the situation I'm in. I am open to the idea that voting for her in a swing state is the proper thing to do because of the issues that would come up to minority peoples of all sorts when it comes to the actions that would be brought forth by a Republican administration, House and Senate. Don't get me wrong, I fully understand the perils that come with that. But with it not being something that'll have any effect on anything with me here in Texas voting for a Democrat, I can't vote for her in good conscience. That she's too much of a neocon, too many neoliberal policies. She militarily might as well be a Republican. Economically, she pretty much might as well be a Republican. And the only place that she falls anywhere near non-Republican would be on social issues. And I understand those are very important and that it's something we need to make sure gets advanced 
and that's why I can understand the swing state vote, but there's no way in hell I could vote for her here in Texas. Thank you. Hey, Jay. It's uh, Nick from Florida, deep in red state Florida, about voting and Bernie and Hillary. Most of us on this show, who listen to this show, we like, we like Bernie, I'm assuming. I got no problem with Hillary. If Hillary was the only candidate, I would be definitely supporting her. The problem is we've seen Bernie and we understand what we can have. So now we want Bernie. So the trick here is, is what happens if and when Bernie doesn't win? And uh, that's just going to make it, it's going to be Hillary versus generic Republican candidate. Despite the fact that we don't love Hillary, there's a lot of things about her that don't make her the perfect Bernie candidate. Uh, she is a million times better than whatever a Republican is. Uh, she's not going to be trying to roll back abortion rights. She's not going to be trying to expand the death penalty or do anything crazy. She's not going to try and bring back firing squads or, I don't know. Who, who knows? The Republicans, like, the greatest thing about those people is they're so creative in the ridiculous stuff they want to come up with next. And they are persistent. So are we going to be better off with Hillary as president or are we going to be better off with insert Republican candidate here? And we should all be in agreement. If you're not in agreement that you're better off with a Democratic candidate uh, than a Republican candidate, then you are completely misguided and you probably have to have an episode about that. Thanks, Jay. You're freaking great. Did I go over two minutes? Who knows? Keep doing what you do. Hi, this is Scott from Oakland, California, and I'm calling to add my two cents to the whole voting strategy conversation. I agree with the trolley car analogy and the idea that voting for Clinton is definitely going to create a little bit more room for leftists to uh, get some stuff done. And uh, I think it's important to note that, you know, change doesn't come through elections. All we're trying to do with elections is kind of create an optimal landscape for the real work to get done, which is organizing movements and really getting change done at the ground level. So we can't spend too much time investing in elections other than just to create that optimal landscape. The only other point to put into this is a, I don't think the person who was saying uh, building third parties uh, is totally off base. I am wary of third parties as far as how much energy uh, we can spend trying to build those uh, when really the system is rigged for two parties. But in a state like California, like mine, I'm not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Not because uh, I think there's a contextual element to voting strategy as well. If I were living in Florida or Ohio, I probably would vote for Hillary just on the off chance that my vote might tip the balance between Trump and Clinton. But in California, my vote for Hillary doesn't make a hill of beans. So I'm going to vote for a Green Party or a Peace and Freedom Party so that I can add a little bit more weight uh, to that and maybe possibly get them the opportunity to show up on the ballot uh, or get funding sources that they wouldn't otherwise. So that's my two cents. Scott from Oakland. Keep up the great work. Love your show. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Rick from Scranton, Pennsylvania. And calling in response to the discussion about voting and uh, the theory behind change uh, and why that sort of drives who we're voting for. In response to the latest episode, the comments 
I'd have to say I strongly disagree with uh, the majority of people in saying that you would have to vote for the most liberal candidate, specifically because my theory for change is really that we need to show the two parties that it's not acceptable to have certain views, not acceptable to just be liberal enough to get our vote in the primary, uh, and that you know if they do not hold strong enough beliefs, if the Democratic Party in particular does not you know, put forward someone who is liberal enough, then they will not win the general election. And I, I feel that that is the only way to, you know, strongly bring the party further towards the left, especially on issues of foreign policy, on money and politics, a lot of the big issues where, to be honest, I don't see a whole lot of difference between Hillary Clinton and the Republicans. I mean, the rhetoric is the rhetoric is different, different, but uh, their actions are not all that different. And in some instances, I see Hillary is more hawkish than, let's say, you know, a Donald Trump. Not that I would vote for Donald Trump, but I would vote for a third-party candidate because uh, that is still a vote. It's not a two-party system. Uh, there are two parties, but if enough people stop voting for the lesser of two evils then we're always going to have a choice between two evils. <laughs> One may be the lesser, um, but uh, this, you know, similar thing with Bernie's theory on, you know, that we need to fight for what we believe in and not just say, man, it's too hard. Let's settle for what we can agree to compromise on with the Republicans, even if it's, you know, compromises a lot of our values. You know, I say if we, if we don't stand up for what we believe in, even if that means that we lose in the short run, I don't think we gain in the long run. I only think we gain in the long run if, you know, everyone or enough people, you know, show the two parties that it's not acceptable and our views are not being represented by those two candidates and we would like someone else. Uh, anyway, I'm not sure if this made a lot of sense, but hopefully it did. Good work. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is Charlie from Cincinnati. I'm a little late to the conversation here, but I had a, a bit of an epiphany regarding my theory of change and voting strategy for the general election when I was watching the Democratic Town Hall on Monday. My original kind of sense was that the best approach for you know people who are really care about ideology and um, are very strongly progressive would, would just be to you know vote third party, preferably Jill Stein. I, I happen to agree with her on most everything, but in doing so, uh, we would send a, a message to the Democratic establishment that they need to you know stop putting forth these these corporate Democrats and, and neoliberals that you know really don't represent the, the base of the party. Um, I don't think in most people's minds, and that you know voting third party would, would kind of send that message and. Uh, encourage change in the in the sort of establishment Democratic Party. But I was watching this town hall, and Rachel Maddow asked Hillary Clinton a couple questions about, you know, what would she do to win over Sanders supporters? And uh, she she basically said nothing. She kept saying, "I'm winning all of these primaries. I have all these so many more voters than him because people like my ideas." And I certainly don't agree that the reason people are voting for her is because they like her ideas. But I guess that's a separate matter. Anyway, I don't think that even if she were to be the nominee and lose in November, that she would, that the Democratic establishment would really recognize that that was because, you know, Democratic voters uh, didn't turn out to vote for her. I'm sure they would come up with a million other excuses, and I don't think that would 
uh, bring about the change we want. I think the better strategy is uh, honestly to, to vote for Hillary. It gives us a sort of a higher, uh, or I guess a better platform to build on once she's in the White House because if a Republican dump to the White House, we're basically going to just be doing everything we can to get tiny, tiny amounts of progressive change. But, you know, hopefully we can uh, we can build in a more substantial way with the Clinton presidency. All right. Thank you very much and keep up the great work. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, you may have noticed that the voicemails we just heard were from people named Doug, Nick, Scott, Rick, and Charlie. And every once in a while... I get some criticism accusing me of being sexist in my choices of voicemail messages to play. And since this was one of those instances that seems especially prone to that type of criticism, I just wanted to point out the names of the people who called in recently on this topic that I didn't use. Those names are Justin, Brian, Gary, Jordan, Keith, Jeff, Patrick, and Zach. Why this turns out to be the case, I have no idea. You can draw your own conclusions. Secondly today, podcast awards nominations are just about to close, so if you happen to download this episode and hear it and you haven't nominated the show yet and you can do it before the end of the day on April 30th, then please do go to podcastawards.com. We want to be nominated in the People's Choice category as well as the News and Politics category, so your help in that is greatly appreciated. And then finally today, I have some boring technical news that I, I, I got to tell you, there's no getting around it. I warned you recently that there was a change coming to the feed and that you may experience a glitch of some sort. Well, that has happened. That has come and gone. So if you're hearing my voice, then that means you either noticed a glitch or you didn't notice a glitch, but either way, you survived it, and we've put that behind us. So that's the good news. Now, the reason I had to do all that, that's the actual important news, and it has to do with the format of the show itself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare you the really boring parts, but here's the basic problem. Before the update, I was getting complaints, not a lot, but just occasional complaints from various people who were having compatibility issues with all kinds of different devices. You know, the show was doing something weird on this device, or the show wasn't playing at all on that device, and so forth. And these were all for different reasons, and it makes sense to me, because I understand the complicated stuff on the back end that you don't need to know, but... The conclusion was obvious, that I needed to move beyond the status quo because it was working for a lot of people, but there was a, a you know a sizable minority who was getting a really subpar experience. The show just wasn't working quite right for them the way it should. So I needed to move beyond what I had been doing for the last 10 years, update it for modern technology, and that is what I have done. And so the good news is that I believe... A hundred percent of you now will get the show in a format that is compatible with essentially any device you want to use to listen to it. Any sort of weird, glitchy, you know, funky, the audio doesn't quite work or the fast forward and rewind buttons don't quite work. Any problems like that you may have had in the past, those should be gone. 
that's the hope. And that benefit is what made, you know, that's what pushed me to make this change. Now, there is a drawback. Since the very beginning of the show, I have always had chapter markers. As you know, the format of the show with all the different clips in it from all the different shows makes it really particularly suited for a chapter marker format. And so if you've ever used, you know, an iPod or any kind of device that can read the chapter markers, you have maybe appreciated those over the years. Now, unfortunately, the change I made means that not everyone who was getting the chapter markers before is getting them now. But there is a way for you to get them. If, if you love them and you want them back and you're missing them now, there are lots of ways to get it. If you're on an Android device, these apps will be able to read the chapter markers. Antenna Pod and Podcast Addict both should be able to read the chapter markers. If you're on an iPhone, then any of these apps, Downcast, iCatcher, Instacast 4, Sleekcast, or Overcast, should all be able to read the chapter markers. If you're on a Windows phone, even, Podcast Picker is the name of the app that should theoretically display the chapter markers for you. And then if you just want to listen to the show on a desktop, then Instacast, which is also on iOS, but they also have a uh, desktop version for Mac. Or if you're on Windows, then Pod Scout should be able to download the show and display the chapter markers for you. Now, the one big exception to this list that you may have noticed is that the native podcast app from Apple, the you know the purple one that came in pre-installed on your iPhone, that is not on the list. They just they don't get along with other people very well. I'm using a format that is sort of universally accepted, and Apple much prefers their own proprietary style. And so you just you can't make something that works perfectly for Apple that is also compatible with everyone else who listens to stuff and wants to use an Android device or a Windows phone device, and so on and so on. I, I trust that you get where I'm coming from. So the changes have been made. Hopefully any compatibility issues we've had are now completely behind us. If you love the chapter markers and want to use them, hopefully one of these pieces of software that I listed will work for you. If not, I understand this solution is not going to make everyone happy. That was never going to be the case. Uh, just keep in mind that the status quo that I was working with wasn't making everyone happy either. So if you fell through the cracks and you know you can still get the show and you can still listen to it, but you don't get your chapter markers anymore, just recognize that that is a sacrifice that you are making for the greater good of the general listening audience. So thank you for understanding. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content that we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories and one
isn't forgotten who it is we're fooling. 